Hello and welcome to Halftime Scholars, the series that features the interesting work of independent and emerging researchers. On this episode, we speak with Lucas Whitaker, a PhD candidate from Queensland University of Technology, Centre for Behavioural Economics, Society and Technology. His research focuses on the recent advancements in artificial intelligence and machine learning that have given rise to deep fakes, a method of creating highly realistic yet inauthentic digital audio images and videos. For marketers, deep fakes present new opportunities for customer value creation, but deep fakes also provide the means for malicious actors to artificially generate media for the purposes of intentional brand sabotage and disinformation. Lucas, welcome to Halftime Scholars. Thanks, Siren. It's great to be here. Can you tell us how your research journey started? What were you doing before your current PhD project? So I did my undergrad at the University of the Sunshine Coast. So it was a double degree in Bachelor of Arts and Business. So during that time, I actually recruited as a research assistant um, for a professor in marketing at the campus. So I worked there for a couple of years, mostly in like the food marketing space, which was pretty cool. So undergrad finished up. I ended up doing some work in the actual faculty itself. So that professor actually went into like the head of school position for a bit. So I was actually her PA. So it was interesting from the perspective of seeing the inner workings of academia, like the, the politics and like admin processes. That was interesting from an early age, seeing that dynamic. So after that, did some work as a business development coordinator. So helping out with putting on events for the faculty. So graduation, debating competitions for the region, for the local schools. That was cool. It was great to get that industry experience. About the same time, that was about a year of doing those jobs. I kind of missed the classroom. I was a good student. I like that. I like to learn. So I kind of got put in contact with USC academic uh, Rory, who um, does work in gamification. So um, he then put me in contact with his old PhD supervisor, Rebecca Russell Bennett. And they actually both came on board as my supervisors for my honours. So I went from a full-time job at USC, moved down to Brisbane, do my honours at QUT, and that was in the gamification space. Bit on that, it was to do with incentivizing household energy efficiency using a gamified app. So that was a cool project. That was about a year. Towards the end, starting to think, what's next? I guess I was always a bit on the fence about PhD. I actually remember being in the office with my supervisor and saying, look, I'll do a PhD because I'm not quite sure what else to do, which then she said, that's not the best motivation I've ever heard for someone doing a PhD, but no, it's been great. Really enjoying the process. As I said, love to learn, so it fits hand in hand. Um, so yeah, so yeah, journey, undergrad, honours at QUT, and now, yeah, now PhD at QUT. So yeah, that sounds a very interesting journey. And I think we always have uh, different pathways to where we are uh, working at the moment. So maybe if you can talk to us a little bit more about the PhD project itself and how that is, what sort of stage you're at at the moment. My PhD project itself is looking at deepfakes. It, more specifically, like consumer perceptions of deepfakes, for example, in advertising contexts. So when I talk about deepfakes, just to provide a bit of background, deepfakes are a form of what we call synthetic media. That's media which is both automatically and artificially generated through artificial intelligence. One of the first examples you probably saw was there was a video published by BuzzFeed in like 2018, which showed what looked like to be a video of Barack Obama, but it was manipulated via deepfake. So we actually, I think in that video called um, Donald Trump a, I quote, like a total and complete dipshit, but it was actually voiced by Jordan Peele. But the mouth movements, uh, the face, it was Barack Obama. Deepfakes themselves are a product of AI and machine learning. So they use video images and audio as training data, and they can generate very realistic but fake output of people doing saying or doing things that didn't actually occur. 
Um, so that's pretty much my general focus in the PhD. So far, I've looked at like conceptual, like a conceptual paper I've put together, looking at how deep fakes can benefit both businesses and customers using the lens of balance and um, centricity, theoretical lens. I've got a paper currently under well, revision at the moment, doing like a systematic literature review on deep fakes. So trying to redefine, uh, well, put together like a theoretically justified definition of what deep fakes are, you know, who's targeted by them, who creates them, what kind of value outcomes can be derived from them. And so where I'm up to at the moment is now starting to design an experiment to actually test people's or evaluate people's perceptions of deepfakes within an advertising context. And this is an area which has not really been explored. So there's lots of potential to contribute. It's also at the same time terrifying because there's not much to fall back on. But for a PhD student, it's a great context to be in because you can be one of the first to make that your space. Um, so in that respect, it's very exciting. So generally, yeah, just looking at consumer perceptions of deep fakes, usually opting in marketing lens because I'm in the School of Advertising, Marketing, Public Relations at QUT, uh, studying in the best center at QUT. Um, so yeah. That sounds uh, quite cutting edge in terms of technology, as well as in terms of the, the horizon of research where you are at. These are all emerging uh, areas in research. So if you drill down a little bit more onto the topic itself, in your opinion, your personal opinion, if you take the research hat for a moment outside or take it off, are deep fakes, are they a phantom menace or are they a new hope? Uh, they're both. It's kind of a gray area because there can be some really transformative applications of deep fakes, but at the same time, they're quite a menace. One of the first applications of them, well, the, the first application was used in pornography. So a Reddit user under the name Deepfakes in late 2017 started posting these videos of adult films with celebrities' faces um, superimposed over the adult film actress's face. And people are like, this is very creepy, but at the same time, it's incredibly well made. So from there, it's now it's moved from there. Like to now, it was then, then like memes. So there was about a couple months where you just see Nicolas Cage's face in every sort of movie or TV show. But now it's going into like organizations are starting to adopt that underlying technology. So for example, to create like cross-cultural communications. So there was one Indian politician who actually translated his political message into various dialects to then target more target voters. It's very much deepfakes and artificial intelligence in this context is very much a tool. Whether it's good or bad is entirely up to the motivation of who wields that tool. It's exciting, but at the same time, there is a need to be a bit cautious about how it's being applied because the fact it can be so realistic means that there's a lot of application for disinformation it's it could, yeah fraud um that's another area we're seeing a lot of um people using deepfakes with fraud like but i'm um, spoofing biometrics for example yeah it's a bit of both phantom menace and also a potential new hope for new ways to communicate um also in marketing as well yeah, so that's quite fascinating. And if you take one step back and if you consider traditional advertising and marketing, in one sense, it could be termed as uh, creating an illusion or creating this lifestyle or creating you know, a product or a brand trying to create this image where and having that aspiration. So I guess in one sense, the deepfakes are potentially trying to go along that pathway that creating that image or creating that lifestyle of not a brand, but what the message is trying to convey. If you take it from that sense, I read recently that machine learning or an AI application had actually won an art competition, but where there was human submissions as well. So the question I'm trying to sort of ask is because there's this gray area and emerging sector or subset of the advertising or marketing space, what are the ethical considerations around that? And also the second part of this question is how do we potentially educate consumers about recognizing these specific gray areas themselves? 
On the ethical side, I think a lot of it is disclosure. I think in China, they brought in legislation to say, look, if you create a deep fake, it has to be disclosed as such, because if it's generated very realistically, there's a high chance of people being deceived by it. So I think ethically disclosing when it's being used, which is an aspect of my research I'm actually going to look at in the, the experiment I'll put together, um, the effect of disclosure. Yeah, not using it for disinformation, especially. Like it's a fine line because marketing is about persuasion. But at the same time, you don't want to be deceiving people. So it's very much, for me, I think a, a lot of it is that disclosure aspect. So they know it's been manipulated. Whether they'll respond positively or negatively to being told it's been manipulated using AI, that's up for debate. That's also an aspect I'll also try and explore in my research. On the, in regards to education, I'm still surprised when I mention my topic, people still don't not understand, they don't realize what defects are and especially what they can do. I think particularly it may be in less media literate or internet illiterate societies who don't have that exposure to AI generated content, there's a lot of potential for them being to be deceived, especially like disinformation, fake news generated via AI. Education is very important, but how we actually achieve that, particularly cultural basis across countries, that's difficult, but it should be done because this is moving so quickly and it's being generated deep fakes and other types of synthetic media are being generated so realistically that can't tell what sometimes is real or fake online, which is quite scary. You're right. And I think there's a lot of challenges. The technology keeps changing, but it's hard to keep up with the education piece. And I like the fact of the disclosures to something like if you watch a movie, if it's suitable for a certain audience and trying to give that free information before that happens so that people are aware. You alluded to some of the experiment side and the methodology, which we could move on to next. So if you can maybe talk us through a little bit more of what you're hoping to do in the experiments or in the research methodology side of things. As I said, like my, this experiment I'm looking at is looking at consumer appraisals of synthetic advertising, that synthetic media aspect. There's three real main areas of interest we're going to look at. That's the role of realism, the degree of realism, which is present in the deepfake disclosure, whether we're telling them it's been manipulated via deepfake or not. And also the presence of certain psychological traits, such as are they more predisposed to when they process information, do they do it more systematically or do they rely on heuristic information processing? So there are three main areas we're going to evaluate in the experiment. So we're looking at those three factors on like marketing outcomes. For example, value creation, behavioral engagement with the video advertisement, because we're going to frame this in like a Facebook newsfeed context and also purchase intention of the product being advertised. So when I'm talking about like value creation, we're talking about you no know, functional value. You no, know, do they derive like the price or quality of the product is optimal? Uh, emotional value, you know, is that product they feel good about that product? You know, social value, does that product make us look good to other people? And epistemic value, does the product fulfill need for experience or satiate curiosity? So we're going to look at manipulating the realism disclosure of the deepfake. Does it influence those value dimensions, purchase intention, and behavioral engagement with the advertisement? So we're going to do that over three studies, which I'm currently in the process of designing. That's really interesting. I think drill down a little bit further. So the first part of the study, is there a certain duration for that? Is there a sort of sample size you're looking at? Uh, how does that side of the experiment work? How it's currently structured, and this is no guarantee it's going to stay this way because it's just been submitted for ethics, which means this could entirely change. But so firstly, we're going to do like a pretest to make sure, which will be about 100, 150 people. This is going to be an experiment administered via Qualtrics, the US sample. We're going to evaluate with our chosen advertisement. So we've manipulated it. So there's a high realism. There's the original advertisement, which acts as our control group. We've then got a high realism deepfake, which is put another celebrity into that advertisement. And it looks very, very realistic. 
what I've then done is then generated a very low realism version of that high realism defect. So what I want to do in the pretest is make sure that how we're going to measure that difference in realism, like we're going to use measures such as you know, human likeness, perceived realism, just to make sure we're capturing what them to perceive has changed. So that difference in realism. So that's a very important part of that pretest. After that study one, that's when we're going to validate. So that relationship like between realism, value, those behavioral outcomes. If that goes well, we then do study two, which then brings in disclosure into the mix. So with that low and high realism deepfake, then in a two by two experiment, some people will see the high realism version without disclosure. Some will see it with disclosure. Some people will see the low realism deepfake with disclosure, and some people will see it without disclosure. And seeing how those groups will respond differently to the advertisement and those value outcomes, purchase intention, behavioral engagement. In study three, same thing, but then just bringing over those psychological traits. So one area I'm interested in in particular is the presence of cognitive bias. More specifically, how they process information is it in a systematic way or a heuristic way. Do they rely on like the substance of the message or do they tend to look for more, I guess, less meaningful cues such as source credibility or like how they look, uh, do they look familiar, do they look real? So those are sorts of ways people can process information on a heuristic level. So I want to see like with my sample, what sort of way they process the information determines how they perceive the deepfake. I anticipate that if people are more inclined to not employ as systematic, if they're not systematic information processes, they might be more inclined to potentially be persuaded by the deepfake or not yet not process the information as systematically as perhaps they should. So yeah, so it's a primitive, like a two, three phase study. And I'm just praying that everything works, but there's no guarantee. Nature of experiment, things are going to go wrong. So I'm sure it's going to change, but that's what I'm looking at overall as those experiments for an upcoming paper. So yeah, that looks quite comprehensive. And I think obviously with the ethics review, hopefully there won't be any significant changes or negligible changes in the project design itself. This question has popped into my mind. So over these experiments, are you hoping to at some point with the thesis itself, is it more on writing a thesis at the end or are you doing thesis by journal publication type process? How does that work? So I'm doing a PhD by publication. So I've got one paper accepted. I've got one I've got to do re revise and resubmit for. So this will be my third paper, but it'll be the first time I've actually collected data. Because my first paper was conceptual. The second one was a systematic literature review. It's really exciting because I've been just hanging out to get some data because I'm more of a quant guy. So I love playing with data, but just that the ethics process does present challenges. So I can go into that in more detail if you like. But yes, at this stage, yeah, PhD by publication, three papers there could be this study there could be another paper in it potentially but i know the criteria for phd by publication is one accepted and two under review so if i get this together put this under review i'll then meet the criteria for graduation that sounds quite interesting and it seems that even though you are probably just starting out the collection of data you're waiting on that process you've obviously done some work and as you said some journal publications are either in review or been accepted so potentially you could graduate maybe in the next 12 to 18 months if the next paper gets published that's really great if i take move forward one step in our discussion today i guess with the challenges writing journal articles also potentially doing now an experiment what are some of the broader challenges you have faced so far in your journey at this stage uh, broader challenges does COVID count as a challenge like working from home, because I started my PhD three weeks before COVID hit. So I started February, 2020. So that didn't do wonders for the whole social integration aspect of the PhD. So working from home for was challenging. You do miss that seeing the same people in the office, going for lunch. So it was good in the way that I could focus on writing a couple of my honors articles up. 
that was good in that regard. But the whole mental health aspect wasn't so hot. That was definitely a challenge. Like PhD itself can be quite isolating, but with COVID that on top, that wasn't a fun time. That was a challenge. In regards to maybe this research mode more specifically, as I alluded to before, ethics. Considering the technology itself, it's new, uh, but also at its heart, there are elements of deception due to the fact that manipulating people, manipulating potentially what they say to a realistic standard. So for ethics, that rings some alarm bells. So I've had to like frame my application, which I submitted a couple of days back, in justifying that it's not deceptive. We're just establishing limited disclosure, telling them it's a deep fake until later on in the experiment. So we got we, we fully debrief them, but saying, look, for the purposes of the experiment, we can't necessarily disclose it is a deep fake to get those the measures we want to measure to get that perception. So that ethics process is challenging in regards to deception, but there's also consent issues because we're taking a celebrity who hasn't consented to being a subject of a deep fake and putting them in an advertisement so that we've had to apply for like a waiver of consent to say like there aren't any large ethical issues and we're not putting them at risk things like that and there's also on the brand side so the brand didn't agree for that advertisement to be manipulated in this way so there's like brand image risk celebrity image risk so we've had to manage that process which hasn't been fun but we'll see how it goes with ethics so they're the two main issues I've had to contend with ethics, but more broadly doing honors, putting together a thesis for honors, moving to journal writing itself. Like I've had to learn how to write more concisely and I'm nowhere near where I should be, but I think that's a skill that PhD students have to hone, which probably should hone rather early because it's such a difference writing a thesis and monograph and then translating that into a journal article. I found that quite challenging because I, I write quite verbosely. So I think having the exposure or the experiences or the opportunity to write articles while I've been studying has given me those skills I can then apply to future writing opportunities. But that was definitely a challenge to write more concisely, but that's more of a, like a general challenge I've had to, I guess, grapple with during my um, PhD so far. That's actually a very good skill to hone in at the early part of your PhD because that sometimes is another learning in itself for a lot of PhD students. Maybe if I can pick up on one of the things you mentioned in terms of the writing. So in that process, if you can recall any really relevant piece of advice that you got from any of your peers or your superiors or your supervisors, what would that be in terms of getting your writing, getting upskilling yourself at that stage? Just getting something down, like I can be a perfectionist. So I spend a lot of time trying to get like the perfect sentence. Everything has to be backed up by research. But a lot of the time you don't have to go into as much detail. You can just get an idea down, hone it later. So if I have a piece of advice, it's just get something down. It doesn't have to be perfect. Your peers or supervisors can then come in, help polish that up, give additional perspectives, but just get something down. Because I can spend so much time just panicking, but like fretting over, oh, is it this perspective? Oh, what about this? I then include conflicting perspectives. It's just have an argument, commit to it, have faith, and then just get it down, essentially. Because there's a lot to do in a PhD and spending time just trying to put a paragraph together. You don't have a lot of time to do that. You get something down and then go from there, really. That's good. Sometimes you think too much and you know, try to get it perfect, as you said. I guess a good place to start. I guess if we move on to the latter half of our discussion today, uh, Lucas, I understand you haven't done, obviously the experiment is still pending, but what do you believe some of the potential findings that you might come up with this uh, study? So I've got a suspicion that particularly the participants who see like the low realism deep fake, like that deep fake, it looks pretty creepy. Like the emotional expression isn't conveyed very well. It's blurry. So I'm predicting some sort of uncanny valley effect there. 
so they get creeped out by that deep fake. And that might have ramifications for the value they perceive for the product. So for example, there might be a destruction of say emotional value. Like they don't feel good about the product because they feel creeped out by the advertisement. So I think that's one potential outcome we might see. The high realism of deep fake, we might not see too many negative effects based on value. When we go to low realism, I think there is the potential for there to be a negative effect. Same time, when we're looking at say disclosure, like I said before, I'm not sure they're going to appreciate the fact that they're being told it's a deep fake because people can be quite wary about artificial intelligence. That is going to be an interesting finding if you can show they don't like it. Like if there's like a, a reaction to artificial intelligence, like a very visceral, I don't want this. Because like marketing itself can, can be perceived as quite manipulative or deceptive as it is. So using that technology in that context, I can see some reaction. There are two sort of areas I can probably say with not some degree of certainty, but what I think might happen, but I'm not sure. Like we're going to have to wait and see because it's such a new area. I can get some inferences from existing literature and persuasion, but it's so new, I just don't know, which is exciting, but also terrifying. Those, I think, are very interesting areas to potentially get data points on and add to the body of literature. But obviously, like you said, you don't know what you're going to find. Some things might surprise you, give a totally different result. So moving on, Lucas, I guess broadly from your understanding of the literature and what you've been reading and also from your existing publications, what do you believe some of the broad practical applications could be in research or findings and emerge from research like this? Uh, well, if we looked at what's already happening, we're seeing deepfakes being adopted by organizations, particularly as communication tools. Um, like I mentioned before, there's that politician who used deepfakes to create cross-cultural communications. We've actually seen a social marketing campaign use a deepfake. They used David Beckham. So they got him, but then translated his voice, well, translated his, well, manipulated his mouth into, into verbalizing different languages. So it was a cross-cultural marketing campaign to stop malaria. Deepfakes themselves are also increasingly easy to create and they don't require that much time to create, which means there's certainly efficiencies when it comes to visual effects. So for example, you can generate visual effects on a level equal to or exceeding CGI for like a fraction of the cost. There was a film, there was a Netflix film or series, it was a film, The Irishman, which showed like um, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and they actually used CGI to de-age them. So there was this YouTuber who did the same thing, but via deepfake. And it was just one person took him a week and those effects were on par with, if not exceeding the CGI from this actual film, which cost something like, I think, 175 million US dollars. There's certainly efficiencies when it comes to visual effects, which deepfakes can definitely leverage. On that same tangent, de-aging, reviving dead celebrities. It is an ethically questionable area, but let's say Princess Leia in Star Wars, so Carrie Fisher, if they trained the AI model on young Carrie Fisher, they could then generate new movies in Star Wars using that younger version of Leia and then synthesizing Carrie Fisher's voice through GANs, for example, generative adversarial networks to actually then create a new voice and can use that to create new content. Again, ethically questionable, but it is possible. Maybe on the marketing side, they're advertising, potentially even like personalization of online shopping experiences. So if we combine a person could defake themselves onto an online avatar and then actually use that in like virtual shopping experiences. So if they could like customize the body using a type of synthetic media called um, generative, so generative adversarial network, you can actually generate full body avatars, like people who don't exist. So you can actually create one of yourself and then use that as like a online shopping avatar for like clothes to actually visualize that before you, before you actually purchase. There's some exciting potential positive applications of deepfakes. Like it's a very new area. 
And there's a lot we're still yet to see. There's a lot we're still, we've still yet to understand. I guess, conversely, there's a lot to come, which should probably give us a bit of concern. Defects and synthetic media more broadly are concerning because they're so hard to detect. So there was there've been a couple of studies done on deepfakes where people are asked, okay, here are two images of people, which one's real and which one's fake? So it's usually about a rate of 50%. So though it's practically akin to guessing which one's real and which one's fake. It's about 50%. Let's think about disinformation. So there was even that deepfake of, was it um, Vladimir Zelensky a couple months ago? And actually it was created by Russian hackers. Like it looked terrible, but it said like Ukrainians give up, lay down your arms, soldiers go home. So there's certainly that threat for deepfakes to be used for disinformation. Deepfakes and synthetic media themselves also devalue information potentially more broadly. So this is what we call the removal of the epistemic backstop. Essentially, when we're in a court of law, we place reliance on evidence such as images, audio, and video. What deepfakes do, they remove that reliance we have on those sorts of media because deepfakes can become that scapegoat that people can leverage and say, oh, it, that wasn't me, that was a deepfake. So it does devalue information more broadly because you can generate very realistic disinformation, which means that courts, for example, can't rely on video and audio for testimony. There are social issues we have to contend with in regards to deepfakes. Also, defects and synthetic media are being used for fraud. So there was a chief financial officer who was fooled into sending, I think, $230,000 US to a fraudulent account because he thought he was on the phone with his boss. But what these fraudsters actually did, they synthesized this boss's voice and then used that to talk to the CFO over the phone. We're seeing examples of criminals engaging in like virtual job interviews with IT firms using deepfakes so they can't actually be identified and then using that to gain access to IT systems. Deepfakes being used to fool biometric scanners. There was an example, it was in China and they actually, because they've got a facial recognition liveness check when they apply in the tax process. So they're actually spoofing or fooling that biometric facial recognition check using deepfakes. Definitely causes for concern. And there are like initiatives such as deepfake detection challenges where researchers are tasked, computer scientists are being tasked to generate algorithms and ways to detect deepfakes. But I think personally that the negative applications, those bad actors are always going to be one step ahead with how they're applying this technology. But yeah, there is work being done to try and detect and get ahead. But I think they're going to always be at least one step behind, really. That's really fascinating. I think there's definitely wide potential for this technology to be a menace rather than to be a new hope, even though it offers a lot of these opportunities. You mentioned saying one step behind. Is there a consideration around like an early warning system? Or if you take currency, for example, the one way you can understand if it's fake or not is having certain markers that identify that it's real or fake. Is there some consideration around that kind of technology for deep fakes and other synthetic media? There is, like, I'm not across the detection side of it as much because that's very much computer science. I'm also marketing. There are talks of, like, using blockchain to actually authenticate certain videos and then using that to confirm this actually happened. I think there's also that similar application with, like, actually integrating it into cameras or something, like the actual film to encode it in some way to, to show it's been authentically filmed. Definitely, I think, a while off, but I'm seeing some discussion about in the literature. I think at this stage, it's very much... We're probably relying on the platforms themselves. So for example, Twitter, Facebook, to deploy algorithms to detect manipulated media. I know that Twitter has a manipulated media policy where they'll actually flag usually deep fakes, particularly if they haven't been disclosed, to say manipulated media underneath. 
usually when it's not already been disclosed by the author. I think until there are more widespread ways of detecting deepfakes, like through authentication, we're going to have to place reliance on these information gatekeepers such as Facebook, Twitter, to have ways of telling us what's been synthetically generated and what hasn't. So through disclosure, those manipulated media tags, for example. How much trust do you want to place on face in Facebook and Twitter? That's not a conversation entirely, but there is that they have a duty to disclose what they detect to be manipulated, especially. So yeah, that's quite interesting. And hopefully the technology can keep up and it won't cause too many problems as it continues to evolve. And I guess my final question for today, Lucas, you're doing your research in cutting edge technology. If you take off your research hat, what do you do in your spare time? So last couple of weeks, not too much because of ethic. So what do I do in my spare time? Usually gym, like it's like the one thing I can do like, and to say I've objectively spent an hour and a half productively because there can be some days when you're studying, it doesn't feel like you actually do anything that day. So I find gym really good, A, to de-stress, but also B, just that knowledge of I've spent time productively. I also a bit of a fanboy for Formula One. So I love my F1. So that's so usually there's a couple of late starts on Monday morning because I'm up to midnight, 1 a.m. watching F1. Apart from that, podcasts. Like I really like history podcasts because a lot of the time it's storytelling, love stories and love history. There are three ways to switch off a bit from PhD and yeah, stay motivated because I think that's really important just to step back a bit and then refresh yourself, then hit the PhD again the next day. That's a really good way to de-stress. I guess, as you said, to refresh or re-engage after taking that break. So I would like to thank you again, Lucas, for sharing your time, sharing your journey, and wish you the best of luck in your experiments and your future journey as well. Thank you so much, Trent. It's been fantastic to be here. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. Let us know what you think of the show and leave us a rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. We'll see you next month on our next episode.